Okay, there are periods of time in a Christian's life, there are seasons in our lives where we can almost doubt the love of God. Isn't that right? We can go through things, we can go through seasons of the Christian life where we doubt the fact that God loves us. It might be those occasions where we're lying in a hospital bed and we're battling a disease or it might be that moment where we're handed a P45 and we realize we've just lost our job. Or it might be as a cherished relationship that we've had, we see it filter away, break down. But there are times in the Christian life where we can find ourselves asking the question, if God really loved me, like if he really loved me, would he allow that sort of thing, this sort of thing to be happening? This morning, as we continue this wonderful but difficult chapter in God's Word, yes, we're going to see a lot about what is to come, and we're going to see a lot about what has happened in history. But I, the principal lesson that we've got here is that even in the hardest of times, even in the darkest of times for the people of God, God does not just care for us. He does not just know what is happening. The chief lesson here is that our God acts, and he acts on behalf of those who belong to him. God loves us, but he acts for us. And I think this morning, uh, we are actually maybe even handed a few things in this portion of scripture by God. God, in this short section, he gives his church a number of truths. So let's look at them just now. The first of those is we're given by God, I think, a caution about the enemy's purposes. That's the first thing we've got here, a caution about the enemy's purposes. So what do I mean by that? (laughs) Well, in, uh, I think it was 1888, or thereabouts, 1888, there was a series of murders. There was a series of killings in Whitechapel in East London, not a million miles away from where we are. Uh, this morning. Now, the notable thing, of course, about these murders was not just that they were brutal, although they were. Uh, The notable thing was the way that these killings sort of captured the public's imagination, because the killer wasn't captured, was he? And uh, having sort of not been identified, he was given a nickname, was he not? And he was dubbed Jack ripper, wasn't he? And of course, at the time, anyone who was anyone, they had a theory about who this mystery man might be. Now, I I want you to understand this morning that a very similar thing has happened with this portion of scripture that you and I are dealing with. Because you'll see right at the beginning of this portion of scripture, Jesus introduces a mystery man, doesn't he? A shadowy figure. Do you see? One he calls abomination of desolation. And do you see what's happened? Like for centuries, people have really loved to speculate. They want to speculate about who this mystery man might be, the abomination of desolation. Now, I'll be honest with you, this is difficult stuff, the abomination of desolation. But what I want us to do just for a few moments is just to try and get to the bottom of the mystery see the question, who or what 
is the abomination of desolation. We are what is the abomination of desolation? Take us think about it in terms of past, present, and future. Because I suppose that the first thing that I've got to ask you is whether you would agree with me that it's a bit of a strange title, isn't it? The abomination of desolation. That's not a nickname that you, you want. It's a strange title, the abomination of desolation. Well, that there is actually a term that Jesus has taken from the Old Testament, from the Old Testament book of Daniel. Now, you see that three times in the book of Daniel, the prophet speaks about, about this desolation, this abomination of desolation. He speaks about something that is going to so appall God and disgust God because it is going to appear in a holy place. I think what we've, we've got to understand is by the time that Jesus is speaking here in Mark 13, most people read that prophecy in Daniel has at least partially been fulfilled. Because about 150 years before Jesus, a Greek king, a great name, uh, Antiochus Epiphanes, this Greek king appeared. Do you know what he did? He built an altar in the temple as he sacrificed to Zeus in the most holy place. Do you see the abomination of desolation where he should not be? Like, do you see what I'm saying to you? As far as the disciples are concerned, 150 years before, there's been a past fulfillment of this prophecy, the abomination of desolation. You see, past. That's not all. Okay? Because if you're paying attention to the text, you'll see Jesus clearly is not talking about that. Have a look with me at verse 14. Do you see what he says? He says, when you see the abomination of desolation, when you see. So he's clearly not talking about something in the past, is he? So what is he talking about? Well, let me turn to the boys and girls for a moment. Okay, now, you were you all here last week, boys and girls? You were were here last week. I love it. Okay, now I wonder if you can remember what we said the passage that we looked at last week was about. Let me tell you if you can't remember. See if you remember this. We said that the passage we looked at last week was about the destruction of the brilliant Martin. It was about the destruction of the temple in AD 70, that at the start of this chapter, Jesus is talking about the fall of the temple. And I'm saying to you, friends, isn't that what Jesus is talking about here? Look at Jesus as he sits with the disciples. Isn't he warning them about that coming atrocity? Couldn't it be that this abomination of desolation is maybe that woman with Titus? You know, the one who sweeps into Jerusalem in the disciples' lifetime, he destroys the temple and what? Yes, he stands where he ought not to be. Do you see it? There's this past abomination of desolation, Antiochus Epiphanes. There is also a present reality in the disciples' lifetime. Well, what did I say? Past, present, yes. Because a moment ago, I invited Peter Fraser up the front here. And Peter read from 2 Thessalonians chapter 
two. Now I wonder, friends, did you notice what was said in Second Thessalonians? Paul the Apostle, at that point, he speaks about a shadowy figure. Doesn't he? He speaks about a man, a man he calls the man of lawlessness. A man who is going to desecrate the holy place. Desecrate the temple. Now here's the thing. When does Paul say this shadowy figure is going to appear? Did you notice what he said? He said he will appear prior to the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I'm saying to you, doesn't that fit exactly with this portion of Scripture? Because, boys and girls, what else did we say about the portion of Scripture last week? We said it's about the temple. What else did we say? We said that Jesus is looking through that temple destruction and looking to his return. That he's really using the destruction of the temple almost as a symbol of the things that will happen at the end of the age. So do you see what we've got? Do you see what Jesus is saying here? He's speaking of one day before his return where a man will appear, an evil man. A wicked man, a man who will appear in the years after us, a man of lawlessness, a man of desecration and desolation. Now, let me reiterate what I just said. People love to speculate about this, don't they? In the past, I've read that the, uh, this man, you know, the abomination of desolation, I've read that he is... I've read that he is Osama bin Laden. I've also read an article that suggested he was Barack Obama. People love to speculate about this stuff. And I don't think that's what we should do. Because you perhaps noticed here that Jesus expects the, this man here, this man of lawlessness, to be instantly recognizable to his people. Like if we are alive at the time, we will know him. We will know him if we see him. We don't speculate. But I do think that we must have at the back of our minds the truth of Mark chapter 13. In the future, before the Perusia, before Christ returns, a man will appear. He will be an enemy of the gospel. He will be a man of lawlessness. So we see a caution about the enemy's purposes. A second thing we see here, though, is a description of the tribulation's pain. A description of the tribulation's pain. I didn't, at the start of this service, I didn't really go into the setting in Mark 13 in the way that we normally would. And there's a reason for that. I think we've got it. You know, we went into it in quite depth uh, last week. You see where Jesus is. He is sitting with, I think it's four of his disciples. And they're sitting high up on the Mount of Olives. Do you remember that? Do you remember that they're looking over the temple courts as Jesus is speaking about this one who is coming to destroy? But friends, we get, oh, we get a sense, don't we, of the horrors that are going to accompany this abomination of desolation. We get a sense of the horrors by the instruction that Jesus gives his people at this point. Because do you see what he says to them? He says, you see when you see this man appear, 
mountains, perhaps even where we get the, the English expression, run for the hills. Because you see the, the exact instruction he gives. He says, you flee when you see him. And you flee to the mountains. Now, you're with me, aren't you, when I say to you that urgency, you know, from the Lord, that sense of haste is, is quite arresting. It's almost kind of frightening to hear that from Jesus, don't you think? I mean, do you see this, like, verse 15, he says, you run when you see the, this man, and you don't go back for your possessions. Like, you don't go into your house. You don't go, you get out of there. And then in verse 17, he says, and it's got to be so difficult for pregnant mothers at this point, because they're going to have to try and run, and run with their little kids, and they're having to try and get out of there. And it takes us to verse 18, and, and he says, and pray, we pray that it doesn't happen in the winter. Why? Not because it's cold. But because the rivers, the streams in Judea in the winter, they really, they swell up. It's going to be difficult to escape. Are you with me when I say, yeah, this, is, this, is, this is shocking, arresting. The, the horrors must be so severe. And Jesus is, is warning us like this. So you see the, the question you and I have got to answer? Why is that happening? Like, who's he, is he telling you and me to be ready to run? Is he just speaking to his disciples? What is he talking about here? Well, again, I think primarily here, Jesus has the temple destruction in AD 70 in view. Because, friends, you, you can understand how awful a moment in history that was. Like, what happened was that there were three full legions of Roman soldiers of these barbarians and they surrounded the city of Jerusalem. Do you know what they did? They starved the city. Then they sacked the city and they slaughtered hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of thousands of Jews. Now get this, right? Despite the fact that just before the Roman army advanced, do you know what the Jews in the surrounding area did? They all fled to Jerusalem because they thought there would be shelter in the city. They fled for miles around in Jerusalem in their droves. But do you know what the people of God did? Do you know what the Christians did? They remembered. They remembered the words. And what did they do? They fled. They literally ran for the hills. They fled to the mountains of the Transjordan. They hid in a city called Pella. Do you see it? This is speaking of the temple destruction. But I want you to see that is not all. So I'd ask you as a congregation to look with me to verse 19. Now, in verse 19, we'll see that Jesus uses a peculiar word. See if you can pick it out. He uses the word tribulation. Now, you need to understand that the word tribulation is almost a technical term in the Bible. It's kind of a semi-technical term, as one of the commentators puts it. And it's a technical term for what? The end. And isn't that what fits with verse 19? Because you see what Jesus says? He says, these troubles, horrors that I'm talking to you about, 
They're going to be like nothing that has ever happened before. And he says this. He says, these horrors are going to be like nothing that has ever happened or will ever happen again. Like the worst atrocities in all of human history. So surely not just a temple. Surely he is speaking of what is coming, the end of the age. And I'm saying to you, Christians, the people of God, is that not worthy of note? Is that not worthy of you and me sitting up and taking note of what Jesus is saying here? Surely just the knowledge that life for the people of God is not always going to be this easy. Surely that drives us to our knees before God. What do we do with this knowledge? The knowledge that there are struggles ahead, difficulties ahead for the people of God. What do we do? I'll tell you what we do. We flee. And we flee as a congregation to God in prayer. That's what we do. So we see a, a caution, the abomination of desolation. We see a description of the horrors that accompany him. Thirdly, though, we see a revelation about the imposter's practices. A revelation, a caution, description, a revelation. Now, as I look out um, to a few people this morning, I realize that uh, for some in London City Presbyterian Church, English is not uh, your first language, and that the comeback is a bit minor there. Um, but even if English is not your first language, probably familiar with that expression, familiarity breeds contempt. We know that the idea, that extensive knowledge of something can lead to disinterest or it can lead to a rejection or something. Familiarity breeds kind of contempt. I've got a worry. I, I worry that familiarity could breed contempt in Mark chapter 13. Because if you look at verse 21 and 22, you'll see something familiar if you've been here for this sermon series. Jesus speaks about false Christs in verse 21 and 22. Does, like, do you see what I mean? Familiarity breeds in contempt. There's a danger here. Because how could we think about that? We could think, oh, well, we dealt with that last week. I know about this. False Christ and false messiahs appearing. Ah, we've, we've covered this. Let's look at the other stuff. Let's not worry about that. Familiarity breeds in contempt. Disinterest at least. And do you know what? I think the absolute opposite should be true. Now, do you see the logic of what I'm saying to you? If our Lord is so concerned about pretenders and imposters in this present age, if he's so concerned, he mentions it twice. In just the space of a few verses, if he's so concerned about this stuff, we don't just push it to the side. What do we do? We, we pay close attention to what he's saying, don't we? And do you know what? If we do that, first thing that we see here is that he's extended his warning from last week. Because do you remember last week, even the boys and girls, do you remember who it was that we were warned about? People pretending to be the Christ. Isn't that right? We were warned about that. People pretending to be the Messiah. That's not what Jesus does here, though. Have a look in verse 22. He warns about false Christ. Look, he also warns about false prophets. 
So men not just pretending to be the Christ, but he's warning about people who are teaching falsely about the Messiah, falsely about the gospel. Then do you know what he does? He gives you their method. Look again at verse 22. How are these pretenders in the last day, how are they going to deceive? Now remember how heartbroken we were last week. We learned that multitudes and multitudes of people in the last days are going to be led away from the cross of Christ Jesus. Do you remember? How do they do it? Look, they perform signs and wonders. I find that so interesting because I'm sure you would agree with me that that is so unlike our Lord. I mean, we're so far in Mark's gospel. And how has Jesus acted in this gospel? He's used signs and wonders so sparingly, isn't he? Like he only uses these miracles to bolster faith, to reinforce existing faith. He never uses signs to lead people to him. Do you see, Jesus has been about truth. He's not been about miracles. And I wonder, friend, do you see the lessons of the church of Jesus Christ in what we've got there? Let me say to you, you and I live in the last days. We live in the last ages, the end times. This is about you. This is about me. We are being warned that in this present age, false teachers will appear and they will win people. They will deceive people. How? Style. Style over substance. That's it. They will win people through show, extravagance, phenomena. See the lesson. If you and I see entertainment take precedence over biblical truth and biblical preaching in the church, what should happen? The alarm bells. They should sound like the people of God. So we see a caution, a description, a revelation, and then we close with an indication, an indication of our God's protection. There is a word uh, that, there's quite a short section of scripture we're looking at, isn't it? Not that many verses. And yet there is a word that is not only used in this section of scripture, it's repeated in this section of scripture, and it is not used anywhere else in all of Mark's gospel. So it appears here, and it appears nowhere else. It was very important because he wrote the whole idea, phrase. Jesus speaks here of the elect. See that? Verse 20, he says, for the sake of the elect. Now, what does that mean, the elect? I'll tell you what it doesn't mean. It does not mean the elite. The elect is not a group of people that have won God's favor by being charitable and being nice and being good Christians. That is not the idea of the elect. The elect is a group of people that God has chosen for himself. Now listen, he has chosen them out of the nations. The nations, not one particular nation. He has chosen them from before the beginning of time. And he has chosen them not because they are worth it, 
not because they are different, not because they are good. He has chosen them only in and through the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I know, I, I know that there is mystery with the elect, but I want to say this. There is no mystery in what Jesus says about the elect here. Look at verse 20. What does he say? He says that it is for the sake of the elected that God will cut short his days of tribulation. For the sake of his people that God will act. And I'm saying to you this morning, if you're a Christian, is that not precious to you? Is that not the most beautiful and encouraging truth? Because what have you got in your hands there? You've got a promise that God so loves his people and his church that at their time of greatest difficulty, their time of greatest need, what does he do? What did we say at the start? He not only sees their difficulty, he not only knows their difficulty, but look at it. Our God acts. Our God cuts short that difficulty. Do you see? Isn't it beautiful? But I want to end with this very simple question. Where do you and I see that active love of God most clearly? Where do we see it? We know the answer. We see it at the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. I have a follow-up question, though. What was going on there? What was that death about? Think about Mark 13. What was happening at Calvary? Friends, is this not true? That there at the cross... The Lord Jesus Christ became an abomination for you. Isn't that what happened there? That there, by taking your wickedness and by taking all of the sin and the iniquity of the elect, what happened? He became disgusting. He became he became utterly defiled in his own father's eyes and weight. As the only ever sinless man, as the perfect and righteous son of God, hanging there on a cursed tree more than anyone ever. Was he not there? He ought not to be. Do you see, out of love for you, the church, the elect, so he could save you. Christ almost becoming something of abomination of desolation for us. And so if you are a Christian, see here anew how much God loves you. He describes in his words how he feels for you. Do you know what he says? I love you with an everlasting love. A love that stretches from eternity to eternity and knows no bounds. But if you are not a Christian this morning, what are you going to do now? Are you going to again turn your back on God? Are you going to walk out that door again rejecting his offer of forgiveness? Is that how it will be for you? Are you going to allow the mystery of election to be your feeble excuse? Friends, this morning, will you not come to Christ? Will you not see the love that God 
is offering and extending to you this morning. Will you not come under the blanket of that divine love? And will you not join the seeds of London City Presbyterian Church as we this morning we worship the name of Jesus in advance? Let's pray as we close the worst.